Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I can relate to companies saying, hey, we're going to solve the communication problem by having everyone be co-located. It helps, but I think you can get much further by being very intentional about how you communicate. And then you end up with people that have two hours a day extra where they don't have to commute, who can have an off-peak lifestyle, that is much more valuable than that 25 minutes at the water cooler. As long as you just have that 25 minutes at the water cooler organized by uh, joining a Slack channel that will match you up with a random person every week. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignant, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Rodney Evans. What's up, guys? And uh, today, in yet another Freaky Friday uh, Switched episode, we're going to be joined by Sid Seabrandy, the co-founder and CEO of GitLab, a company we're big fans of. Uh, Sid, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. On uh, today's episode, we intend to talk about working remotely after the novelty wears off, after the sweatpants no longer feel like a luxury. Um, It seems like a whole bunch of companies in the world are fresh to this scene. They're excited about the possibilities. They're worried. They're freaking out. They're trying to make it happen. And there's plenty of advice about that. But it might be interesting to dig into, you know, what does this look like at a varsity level? Uh, But before we go there, we, of course, have to check in. We have to check in, as we we always do, with a check-in question. Uh, So uh, I will pose it to you first, Aaron, and then you, Sid. Our check-in question for today is, what is the biggest thing that has changed for you in the last couple of weeks among the global pandemic that is unfolding around (laughs) us? Aaron, biggest change? Um, I think for me, it's that I'm actually... Uh, on a completely different schedule. So I used to have a schedule that started at the office at eight and then went climbing at four and like everything was different. And now uh, I have a totally different hours. I walk with the family. I walk the dog. I, it's like a completely different life. My windows of productivity are different, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, I'm on, I'm on a whole different program now. Nice. Sid, what about you? What's the biggest change that you've seen in the last couple of weeks? The biggest change is that a lot of our Uh, team members now have kids at home that they need Mm -hmm. to take care of. So Mm -hmm. I want to be accommodating to that. Um, We also like there's, there's this higher anxiety in the company. So we try to try to pay more attention to being social. For example, yesterday we did a talent show with marketing all over (laughs) uh, zoom and that was a ton of fun. Nice. That's awesome. 
for me, the biggest change is not traveling. Uh, I've traveled multiple times every month for the last 10 years, and I don't remember a time that I could just unequivocally make plans without really looking at a calendar to know whether I was physically going to be in town that day. And so uh, true. I have realized how much psychic space that took up for me. And uh, I'm actually really enjoying just being basically in one spot all the time. That's wild. I hadn't thought about the fact that travel and remote work are independent variables, but they are. Like we're, We've been fully remote since the founding, basically, but uh, but we travel a ton. And a ton? now that's, that's off the Yeah, we're grounded. Fully grounded. So, Sid, we're super excited to have you here to talk about remote working and all that comes with it, which obviously a lot of folks are very focused on and doing uh, in many instances for the first time. Uh Let's just start with um, asking you, you know, talk to us a little bit about what GitLab actually does and uh, and why the company ended up working remotely. Yeah, so GitLab is a complete DevOps solution delivered as a single application. We help companies uh, make software faster, reduce the time between deciding, hey, I'm going to do this, to getting it out there. And it contains everything you need to build software, all the way from planning what you're going to make. Um, Developing that, packaging, testing, rolling that out, monitoring it, and defending it against uh, security threats. So um, it's an open source solution, and uh, it started out like that. So in the beginning, my co-founder, Dimitri, lived in the Ukraine, and uh, he started GitLab. He had two things he wanted to improve in life. He uh, <laughs> didn't have running water, and he didn't have great collaboration software at work. So he chose to... Uh, <laughs> fix the software first and uh, 300 people uh, joined him in that effort in the first year that just from all around the world. And I, uh, I saw it only then and I was like, this is amazing. And uh, I'm going to start gitlab.com. So I sent him an email. Uh, hey, I'm going to start gitlab.com without you. Hope that's okay. He said, no, go for it. It's open source. And uh, a year later, he tweeted to the whole world, I want to work on GitLab full time. So I sent him a, an email again and uh, made him an offer and went to the local Western Union office uh, to make a transfer. And they said, well, that person is in Ukraine. Are you sure about this? Or is this someone you <laughs> met over the internet? And uh, made the wire and we were in business. And our first- Those are true. Yeah, both are true. They're not exclusive. Um, and our first team member was someone in Serbia. So it was logical for us at that time to be remote. And- Talk a little bit about the size of the company now and how it works remotely. So I think most people probably aren't as familiar as we are with kind of what it looks like. Yeah, so first couple of years, it was smaller. We uh, bootstrapped. And then in uh, 2015, we joined a program called Y Combinator in Mountain View. So we moved everyone to, the, to Mountain View for um, three months, lived together in a house, very typical Silicon Valley. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then we got an office because they said, look, this, this remote thing, it works for engineering, but it doesn't work for all the other departments. So we got an office, but people kind of didn't show up for a long time. People came to the <laughs> office after they got hired for a couple of days, but it was just as effective working from home. And uh, so people had a fourth day, they, they typically didn't show up anymore, but they still were working. And uh, that, that kept going on for, until our lease expired. We didn't renew the lease. Um, we rented a mailbox instead and became an all-remote company. And uh, last year, we grew from uh, 
400 to 1,100 people. We're now over 1,200 Whoa. people. That's a big year. Yep. So for those who are going remote, uh, maybe for the first time, what are some things that you think they are likely to get wrong or to misunderstand about remote working? I think there's kind of a first wave of remote, which is just copying what you did before, but then doing it remote. So instead of in the conference room, you have the meeting in Zoom. Instead mm -hmm. of in the hallway, you send a direct message on Slack. And I think there's a, a second wave to take advantage of the tools. Hey, with Zoom, you can record the meeting for the person who mm -hmm. couldn't attend. With Slack, you can, instead of direct messaging, you can do it in a channel so people have context about what's happening and can chime in. And then maybe there's a, a third wave of remote where you start working more asynchronous. You start using tools like GitLab to um, track the work that's in progress. So you don't have to come together for a meeting for a status update. You don't have to have a meeting to chime in on a proposal. Uh, all those things can happen when, they, uh, when a person is ready for it. You don't have to interrupt someone's flow uh, to do that. You have the meetings just if there's a lot of back and forth in text, you can have a meeting to um, to flesh that out. But it's not it's not the default tool anymore. And where do you feel like GitLab is on its remote work journey? Like, do you guys feel like you have a way of doing this now that's really ingrained and it isn't still changing a lot, or do you feel like the scaling and the deepening of that practice is making it something that's still quite fluid for you? I think. Mean, we do remote better than any other company in the world, but that doesn't mean it's perfect. I, <laughs> I, I think we still have meetings that should have been asynchronous instead. Same. Um, but I, I think we do it really well. And I think one of the things we do really well is making sure that we write down and we make discoverable what, what was concluded. We have a handbook of over 5,000 pages with all of our processes and procedures and, and that is our source of truth. If you change a process at GitLab, you, you show how you change the handbook. Um, and, and that's been very, very helpful. Where does the handbook live? Is that inside GitLab or is it somewhere else? It's a static website made with GitLab pages. And you can, uh, you can find it if you just Google GitLab handbook. Nice. So um, beyond tooling, I am curious about some of the more like interpersonal sides. So um, when you talked about wave three, that that intuitively makes a lot of sense to me uh, in terms of how changes to the infrastructure, changes to the tool stack, changes to the use of those things can really support working remotely. What about in terms of keeping connection and connectivity within the workforce so that you have that like strength of culture? What are some of the things that you've seen work well? Yeah. Um, I think there's three dimensions to that. So culture, it can mean like how you work, how you communicate. And there you can be very prescriptive. If you Google GitLab communication, well, we write down exactly how you should communicate within GitLab. Uh, then there's um, your values. And we you can get much more organized around your values than many companies do. At GitLab, we now have 13 ways in which we reinforce our values. Um, your values are basically who you hire, who you promote, who you reward. Um, so every time we have one of those events, we 
we structure them according to our values. There's many, many other things we do. So I, I think we've, with many companies, as they grow fast, you see the values dilute. I think remote forces you to write them down and gives you an opportunity to get even better as you scale. And then the third thing is to be is the informal communication. And I think with remote, you have to be very intentional around your informal communication. So at GitLab, we organize a ton of different things to get people to uh, get to know each other on a, on a personal basis. And that's everything from coffee chats, where we encourage people to just plan uh, a meeting of 25 minutes without an agenda on Zoom to get to know someone else. And we actually make you do that when you onboard. Um, uh, so that people con can continue it later. We have team socials uh, where people just hang out an hour a week with their team and chat about work or maybe about things outside of work. We have the take a break calls where we, those are structured around interests, so certain hobbies, um, where we do that like two times, uh, two times a week typically. Um, because of... Uh, COVID-19, we now have the juice box calls, uh, which are not, which are for kids. So people actively <laughs> like bring their kids together. Uh, it's been a lot of fun and we're, we're doing a few special things like the talent show I talked about yesterday. So there's a ton of things. The important thing is when you had an office and you were co-located, you had a lot of organic interaction with remote. It tends to be that the meetings are more structured. So you got to you got to intentionally organize the informal interaction. So one of the things I really wanted to ask you about that's kind of connected to some of that informal stuff is I have seen so many guides to remote hit the market in the last week or two where everybody's like, here's how to do it. Here's how to do it. Here's how to do it. And obviously the GitLab one is one of the more robust and I think, you know, backed by actual practice. But what about this doesn't fit well in a guide? What, what would somebody that just read the guide and went and tried to do it miss? that you think would be important to understand or that just requires some measure of practice or some new mindset to, to operate? Yeah, I haven't found anything that you cannot write down in a guide. Um, <laughs> Thus the 5,000 um, pages. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's sometimes a bit awkward to, um, to enforce. So mm. that's been tough at GitLab where someone joins the company and very well-intentioned, they send around a presentation of a process they want to change and or, or and say, hey, this is the new way we're doing things. And, and then you have to remind people like, no, no, it's change it in the handbook. And their, their, their standard response is, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to that. Mm. And then, no, no, we learned. <laughs> you know, you don't get around to it. So change it only <laughs> one time, only change it in the handbook. Don't do the presentation. Um, another thing is that is, that is not intuitive uh, and that's hard to enforce, is not presenting in meetings. Uh, at GitLab, when we have a meeting and you start with your 10-minute presentation, that's a waste of time. People could have mm. seen that presentation beforehand. You could have recorded a video and just uploaded it. So the meeting should be for interaction, not for presenting, not for broadcasting. But that's not intuitive to a ton of people. Those are two really good examples. I'm really curious on the first one, when somebody wants to make a change to the handbook, who has the authority to do that, and and how is it done? Like, what if what if I what if I do want to change a process? Can I do that? You can. So you can just uh, Google GitLab handbook and uh, 
bottom of the page, you'll find an edit button. The only thing is that someone else, someone at GitLab has to approve it. Um, so you'd, uh, if you don't work at GitLab, you can just tweet at me and I'll, I'll have a look at it. Um, or just submit it and then probably someone will have a look at it. So anybody can make a proposal and then typically the approval is done by the person who's responsible for that department. Got it. So there's some kind of authority structure that over overlays the handbook environment. Yeah, the, we're functionally organized organizations. So the handbook is also functionally organized with different sections for engineering and people operations, etc. Got it. Okay, interesting. So you've been at this for a while. Uh, what would you say have been some of the unexpected benefits of working this way over the long term? I mean, the, apart from being remote, we're also a very transparent company. Being transparent is easier if you're remote because you get a ton of artifacts. You have way more mm -hmm. opportunities to write things down and to record things. Um, so we've published a ton. And in the beginning, we did that in order not to alienate the open source community around the project. And that's, that's worked well. We got hundreds of improvements in GitLab contributed from outside the company every month. Uh, but what also happened is that it became a giant giant attractor of people. It was great mm. for our talent brand. And we, we have over 10,000 people applying to the company every week. Wow. That is, that is an amazing benefit. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the talent brand is insane. And it's funny because I feel like in every large-scale survey that is conducted, people resoundingly in the workforce say that flexibility in terms of where they work is really, really important. And yet, uh, a lot of companies don't really think about how big of a deal that is in terms of attraction. So the those numbers in terms of applicants certainly bear that out, that what people say is important to them really does track to, uh, to them actually seeking the kind of opportunities that allow them to do that. That's really cool. Yeah, I think that, that communication between your people is, in any company or skill, is your biggest problem. And I think there's if you work remote, but you don't enforce the guardrails, it it can go really off track. And I think it's very unnatural for people to prescribe these things, like prescribing, hey, we don't present in meetings. That, mm -hmm. is, that, that is not easy. That is very awkward. Um, it's super helpful. Um, another rule that, that might not be intuitive is that you don't have to pay attention during meetings. <laughs> If you, if you don't pay attention, someone has to repeat a question, that is totally fine. We want you to be the a manager of one and the boss of your own attention. Hmm. That is, new people keep saying, oh, yeah, in meetings, everyone has to pay attention. It's like, no, people are in meetings like sometimes four or five hours a day. If, if a part of that meeting isn't relevant, it's totally okay for them to, uh, to do something else. So that's been... Um, I can relate to companies saying, hey, we're going to solve the communication problem by having everyone be co-located. It, it, mm. it helps, but I think you can get much further by being very intentional about how you communicate. And then you end up with people that have two hours a day extra where they don't have to commute, who can have an off-peak lifestyle, who can be near the people they care about, have flexibility if, they, if the people they care about need them that is much more valuable than that 25 minutes at the water cooler 
-hmm. as long as you just have that 25 minutes at the water cooler organized <laughs> by uh, joining a Slack channel that will match you up with a random person every week. Mm -hmm. The Just going back, the the idea of explicitly saying you don't need to pay attention in a meeting if there's, you know, if it's not relevant to you and just self-manage is uh, one that I've not heard before, which is really fun. Uh, are there other things like that kicking around at GitLab that, that come to mind that are like, you know, sort of pat accepted tropes that you're just like, no, we're not nah. going to do that here. <laughs> I think there's, there's a ton of, there's a ton of things. Um, I think one things that, uh, one thing that's hilarious is uh, if you Google uh, GitLab unfiltered, you'll find our YouTube channel and we, we, we live stream a ton of meetings not all the meetings in the company, not all the time, but a ton. So you'll find like extremely boring content on there. And <laughs> it's, it's questionable why it's public uh, in the first place, but it's fascinating because it's almost impossible to find this content anywhere else. Like right. you'd have to have like a kids at work day or something where you sneak in yeah. with your, your parents in order to see this. And suddenly this is, is suddenly this is accessible. We have, students in South Korea now studying our handbook um, because it's the first time that you had like this, this level of internal information available to uh, study. So I, I think that's, that's kind of funny. And uh, I, I wonder what the, what the result of that will be over the long term. That's so interesting. Why did you guys decide to do that? Well, we had a lot of written materials, but uh, kind of YouTube is, is, it's, it's such a powerful medium and the medium of the future. And if, if I have spare time, I just start watching YouTube. I, I don't watch produced channels. You watch kind mm -hmm. of individuals who take care to record what they enjoy doing anyway, or their work. Mm -hmm. I watch a ton of time. This guy is like building trenches and, and digging out trees. And it's just interesting because it has so much fidelity, not what they tell you, not a journalist that tells you things, but you can see what's actually happening. And I thought that was powerful. And we started recording meetings and encouraging people like, hey, if you're, if you're in doubt, just live stream it. And now sometimes mm -hmm. we have two, three recordings going on at the same time. Well, fascinating. That's, yeah, I'm going to check that out. Um, I am curious on the flip side, and obviously this is not super possible right now in the moment we're in, because uh, it is, what, close to the last day of March when we're doing this. Um, do you ever bring folks together physically in the same space? We do. We were supposed to do that in uh, Prague. We do it uh, once every year, bring the whole company together. And we spend that week not with work, not with presentations, but we spend one third, uh, one, one half um, doing excursions together, exploring the place we're in, just to, to kind of have informal chats with everyone. And the second half is a bit more organized where we do an unconference where people propose a subject and people talk about it. And the Regularly, the most popular subjects are uh, lack of motivation and being close to a burnout. So kind of the, the mm. softer, harder subjects to talk about. Got it. And what will you do now? Have you just postponed that moment or? Uh, we just, we first postponed it. Now we canceled it. Uh, now we're probably going to do a virtual one in a couple of months. And then next year, hopefully uh, an in-person one again. So Aaron and I are obviously 
philosophically in the sort of self-management and self-organization wave of thinking. Um, And so a lot of what we talk about is how to distribute authority, how to empower workforces. Do you feel like remote work is really just code for like empowered work and giving people agency over where they're working? How do those things play for you? I think it's possible to just have a remote organization that's just as not self-organizing as it was before. Mm. Um, I think there's there's a couple of things. Uh, we, we strongly believe in hierarchy. So we everyone should have exactly one manager who understands what they do. Um, if you don't have a manager that understands what you do, it's hard to measure results. And if you don't measure results, frequently people start measuring input instead which is the worst because now you have to work long hours, even if it doesn't matter that much whether you work long hours or not. So we don't do cross-functional teams and things like that. Uh, We we collaborate cross-functionally, but we don't have a manager that has reports uh, that they don't understand what their output is. Um, I do think of putting responsibility on the lowest possible level is a great idea. We call it DRI, directly responsible individual. And we try to have the person who has to perform the work make the decision so that you're always working on something you believe in. Rather have the Mm -hmm. wrong decision being executed with enthusiasm than the reverse. Um, So that's going well. I do think another thing that's missing is that a lot of people have this artificial distinction between a kind of a consensus-driven organization and a more... A hierarchical organization. I think it's so important to uh, make decisions in two different phases. Um, first is the proposal phase where you say, hey, I'm thinking about this decision. This is what I propose. And everyone can contribute. Everyone can provide input. And then the second phase where you have to make a decision, the person that has to do the work makes the decision and they don't owe anybody an explanation for why they made that decision. Because if you mm-hmm. start doing that, people will start trying to do things under the radar so that they got less opinions so that they don't have to explain themselves too much. Yeah, that smacks of uh, the advice process that we've seen at a lot of the companies we study. So that that makes sense. As a pivot, uh, I'm I'm a little bit interested in just uh, talking about this moment we're in. So let me, let me throw a couple of questions your way on that. Um, a whole bunch of companies that were not working remotely are suddenly doing it. Are you excited about that? Are you optimistic about that? Pessimistic about their chances? Like just when you stand back and look at this moment in human history and how it aligns or doesn't with what you've been advocating for for years, what, where are you guys sitting? What are you thinking? What's the inside dialogue like at, at GitLab right now? Yeah, I think it's um, obviously the, the having a pandemic is a horrible event. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm it's great to see so many people kind of explore the new remote tools, Zoom, Slack, things like that. Um, and I think the world will be slightly different afterwards where I know of a ton of people who have to commute a lot and they're required to be at the office five days a week. And mm-hmm. I think a ton of companies are going to be less restrictive and are going to allow more work from home. Um, I also think that um, business meetings will be quicker move to Zoom. Like after this pandemic, suddenly a whole ton of people have a good setup to do to have a video call. 
It mm-hmm. used to be so excruciating if people <laughs> didn't have right. their webcam aimed correctly or don't know how to mute themselves. That people are learning. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and it doesn't make sense to spend 20 hours to traveling to, to attend a two-hour meeting. So I think events and, and meeting people, it, it won't suddenly all be remote, but remote is going to be a bigger option there. And we'll get uh, a bit more efficient by, by how much we travel. Um, so I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited about those developments. I think um, ideally, I think every company, every every like company that produces digital outputs, part of your work should be at the office, and part of your work should be uh, from home. I think when you take the step to kind of round it down to zero, like we have done, there is no office. It opens up a ton of possibilities. You no longer need real estate. You can hire anywhere in the world. And there's there's going to be a bigger fraction of companies that will take that step and rank it to zero and start becoming all remote. But I think the most important thing is that remote is going to get more, be more accepted as a thing. And that's going to save on computing time. It's going to give people more flexibility and a better work-life harmony. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I was talking to somebody that... Uh works at a remote technology company that we're all very familiar with this week. And uh, and he was saying to me, I had not thought about this, but I thought it was really interesting. He was like, we're considering the fact that although there's such a spike in use of things like Zoom and Slack, et cetera, right now, that because it's forced and because it's sort of painted with the brush of this societal crisis, that as soon as this is over, people will be like, oh, thank God we're done with that. Let's go back back to the way it was and snap back because there's like bad association with Mm. working this way. I'm curious that have, have you thought at all about that? And like, what would you, what would you say to folks who might fall into that camp? Well, there's going to be a ton of people who will be really excited when they go and go back to the office, not uh, including my wife. She's looking forward to that (laughs) moment already. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. But I, I think people are smarter than that. They, Although it's forced upon them now, they're going to get the hang of these tools and they're going to see the benefits and they'll be more familiar with how to use it. So, of course, we'll we'll snap back a bit, but um, these these tools are here to stay and and people are, we're tool users. So if you hand us better tools, we'll, we'll use them better, I think. The tools like Zoom is so much better than video conferencing even four years ago mm-hmm. um, that it's going to be a different world after this. Well, I think that seems like a very optimistic and uh, you know lovely place to draw things to a close. So I will say, uh, Sid, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing, uh, sharing the GitLab wisdom. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you all so much for listening today. If you didn't know this, Amazon has now sold out of podcasting microphones. So your sharing and reviewing our episode will ensure that we don't get lost in the sea of new podcasts soon to be in the marketplace. Coronacasts, indeed. So please share us and review us. We appreciate it. We can't do it without you. Along those lines, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin, who we also can't do it without. Uh, makes us sound good every week. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. We love your notes. We write back. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>